We're starting a series this morning called Making Sense of the World. Making Sense of the World. Um, we're doing this for this reason. Our goal in this series is to set the stage so that you can maximize human flourishing in your life and maximize the glory of God in the earth through your life. I'll say that again. To set the stage so that you can maximize human flourishing in your life and maximize the glory of God in the earth through your life. Now, why? Making sense of the world. Making sense of the world. This week, we uh, arrested some domestic terrorists in Georgia. People were kidnapped on the border. Some were killed. We have a war in Eastern Europe. We have economic uncertainty. We have anxiety and mental health. The psychology today says that the average high schooler today has the same level of anxiety than the average psychiatric patient in the 1950s. We need to make sense of our world, amen? How do we do that? Well, part of it comes in rooms like this. Because we, we get out of ourselves, we, we get in a row, we, we focus our heart on Jesus and we worship him. That's why being in this room on a weekly basis is so important. That's why it needs to be priority. But it also needs to be not just rows, but that we gather in circles, that we sit at tables and we share food and we talk about what God's doing. We discuss the scriptures. All of these are important in forming us and seeing the world. Now, there are supplements to a healthy diet of corporate worship and Bible study and life groups. That's why life groups are so important. Right, Ron? Every Wednesday morning, 6.30, baby, let's go. So these are so important. Now, we can supplement that with podcasts and sermons and YouTube. All that's great. If you're joining us online, thank you. But these are supplements to a healthy diet of being in the presence of God and studying His Word in community. Supplements are not a substitute. And so the goal this morning, maybe I'll say it a different way, if we better understand our beginning and God's design, we will better live into our present, maximizing our potential of human flourishing and our potential to display His glory. Now you might be saying, Blake, that's a lofty goal. Well, is there any other kind? Amen? And so... I was thinking about, Beatty actually turned me on to a, um, a documentary. I'm a, kind of a documentary nerd. Love watching documentaries. This was a sports one. The Redeem Team, if anybody ever seen that on Netflix. Uh, I was talking about how basically the dream team with Michael and Magic and Larry and how the deterioration of the, the U.S. national team and the Olympic team to win the, the, the gold medal in basketball, and then LeBron and Kobe, and they kind of come along, and, and their ascendancy back to the throne of the world, uh, you know, the gold medal. Now, what was interesting about this journey was that the game, the level of the game across international borders had risen, and, and there was good basketball being played almost in uh, dozens of countries. And so, uh, Yes, the U.S. wasn't playing as a team, but one of the issues was that the game was different. The rules were different. The ball was different. And so you couldn't just show up a couple weeks before the Olympics and win. 
You had to train. You had to learn the new context. Why is that important? Because if we don't see the context that we're in, the, the world that God has created, its intentional design, its purpose, God's intention through creation, we may be playing a game according to the wrong rules. And so this morning, I want us to look at what I've entitled this sermon, The Power of a Creation Context. The Power of a Creation Context. Malcolm Gladwell, in his book, The Tipping Point, How Little Things Can Make a Big Difference, studied how, just like there were viral epidemics, which we're familiar with, right? There are social epidemics, how ideas and trends become, uh, fads become trends. They, they alter the shape of human history. And he studied that in, in chapter 4 of his book. He talked about the power of context, how someone's physical environment, their context, is more influential than their personality and their psychology. If you can create the environment, and he talked about studies, as some of you know, the, the, the famous Stanford experiment. There was a Princeton experiment where they took... Uh, uh, students who were training to be in full-time ministry. I think we've talked about this before. And they t told them to prepare a sermon about the Great Samaritan. And then they led them beside people in great need and agony on the campus. And the ones who were told, you're in a lot of hurry, would walk by the people suffering and deliver an address on the Good Samaritan while they walked, stepped over the person on the way to do that because the physical environment determined and their anxiety and their stress altered how they saw reality. And so if we don't see reality correctly, if we don't see our creation context, we begin living according to an alternate one. And so your mental context, your mental maps, there's a catchphrase, right? your mental maps, your mental framework, if we don't construct that according to what God says is reality, we've been to live according to another. My daughter has a set of books called The Land of Stories. Have you ever heard of this? Some of us? Anybody? A couple of us. Three with kids? All right, girls? All right, good. Well, in this story, and she would, she would talk about it. We'd listen a lot. She listens to it, audio book. I began to realize what a picture in this what happens is this brother and sister have fallen into this, um, this story. But it's basically classic uh, fairy tales interwoven into a grand tale. And at first they find themselves in this story uh, and they're kind of learning. It's usually high drama. They're trying to figure out what's going on. Their lives are in danger. And they're just kind of bystanders to a bigger story. But as they get into the story, as they begin to hear what's going on, they realize that not only do they have a part to play, but they're central to a greater story. They have a critical role to play. And when we read this story of the Bible, we read creation, we don't just see ourselves externally as some kind of watching what's going on. We find ourselves right now in the middle of this story playing and able to play a critical role. Amen? So Genesis 1 goes like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I'm going to skip through this some, so if you're like, I don't remember that part. Yeah, there's, read the whole chapter, but for time's sake, I'm going to skip around. 
The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the the face of the waters. The word there is brooding. You, You kind of see something's about to happen. And God said, let there be light and there was light. And God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let... There be an expanse in the midst of the waters and it separated the waters from the waters. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And God said, let there be light in the expanse of the heavens, luminary, some translations say, to separate the day from the night. And let there be signs and for seasons and for days and years. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply in the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living creature, thing that moves on the earth. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Father, help us this morning. Give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might know you better. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we're going to talk about the sovereignty, the sovereign of creation, the setting of creation, And the Sabbath of creation. Number one, the sovereignty. In the beginning was God. Without apology. Without introduction. There he is. Speaking the world into existence. Elohim. Even from the first word about what we know about God, there's mystery. Elohim is a plural word. It's plural. The Elohim of Elohim the God of gods, the great one. But it's interesting, the first verb used to describe what God's doing is singular. And we see this throughout the book of Genesis, throughout the Pentateuch and the Torah, that God is one God. But there's mystery. Is he plural? Is he, and there's this plural plurality of depth about God that we don't see, that we don't understand fully. That's why Paul proclaims in Ephesians 1, we just prayed it. 
God, grant us a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we might know you because there is a depth to who God is. You don't walk in a room and know God. You walk with God for the rest of your life and you still don't know the fullness of who He is. He is Elohim. And He is sovereign over creation. Most of human history, the hearers of this account would think how unique it was because there was not lots of gods. In fact, the writer of Genesis is going very intricately and God, by his spirit, very on purpose, there is no reference to God but God. In fact, just so you wouldn't maybe mistake what they said, they wouldn't even say God created the sun because even the word sun in certain cultures meant God. And so, no, there's just lamps, lamps that mark day and lamps that mark night. There is one God and his name is Elohim. He would later become known as Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim. But today, we do not fight with a pantheon of gods. At least in the West, our ideological competition is around God being God at all. God isn't. And, and many sociologists believe that slowly as science would emerge, people and, and societies would become less religious, but we have not found that so. We have moved God out of his place only to find that we're more religious as ever. Maybe not about God, but about what now we've called the political religions. The state has emerged as God. If y'all don't believe me, I was at a... a football game recently, and my son and I were at the game. We were going to watch it. I think it was back in August or September, and I was distracted on my phone, and I was sending a text trying to figure out something going on, and I didn't realize it, but the national anthem had started, right? And so I'm, you know, on my phone, and all of a sudden from a, a, a section or two over, some man stood up yelling at me because my hat was on. Instantly, I took back to my private Christian school, walking down the hall, and the hall monitors with their rulers, oh, your belt's not tucked in. So, you know, we, we were very strict about what we could wear. Where's your college shirt? Well, back then, we did the front. You had the front tuck, but you had the back was out, you know? And so that was cool, but you couldn't do that. There was always a tattletale. Hey, your, belt, your, your shirt's not tucked in. And then right there in the football game, Taken back to this religious moment. What am I doing wrong? Guilt and shame. Condemnation. Because I have broken the rules. No, yes, I take my hat off for the national anthem. But you can see and feel the religious fervor around the state rising. Could be communism. Could be socialism. Fascism. I was given a demerit at the football game because my hat didn't come off in time. We don't just feel that from the right. We feel it from the left, right? We, we enter uh, uh, the grocery store. We didn't bring our bags. We kind of get the eye from the religious green. They find out you don't recycle. You're in trouble. Shame and guilt. I do recycle, y'all. Just calm down. But we see, we feel this religious fervor because you cannot pull God out and expect not the man created and the woman created for God not to worship. We're going to worship something. 
But if you get rid of the state, the self emerges, does it not? For my libertarian friends, you're not off the hook. The self will rise. John Mark Comer's book, Live No Lies, says this, self is the new God. The new spiritual authority, the new morality. Y'all have heard it, right? You do you, let it go. As long as you don't hurt anyone. But this puts a crushing weight on the self. One it was never designed to bear. It must discover itself, become itself, stay true to itself, justify itself, make itself happy, perform and defend its fragile identity. As my Peloton instructor would say, validate your greatness. But what about the many days when you're not all that great? The pressure is exhausting. Cue the stats of burnout, anxiety, and mental health. You cannot remove God and not expect the vacuum to be sucked in. Something will be there. And you find yourself as your own God, you will be crushed under the weight of it. Trying to determine what's right and wrong. Trying to determine who you are. The problem is, which self, which self, Inside of yourself, will you follow? Because I got lots of selves. I got fat selves. I got really running hard selves. I got successful selves. I got really depressed selves. In the creation narrative, God is without equal. There is no God but God. He is creator, initiator, definer. He is the supreme authority. He creates ex nihilo out of nothing. He is Elohim. If you are tired this morning of holding your world together, defining yourself, controlling all the narratives about yourself, you can come to the one who has named you and knows you by name. He was intricately acquainted with all your ways, all your weaknesses, and has loved you from the moment before your parents even looked at each other. Next, we see studying the setting of creation. There's, there's so much here. I'm just going to pull out three quick points. We see there that God, in a moment, could have created everything, but he chose to do it in process. Do we realize that? That God could have said, one day, forget all the seven, one word, it's all here. No, slowly, methodically, he's creating creation. Why? Because God has points of power and process. Points of power and process. He, he wove it into creation. He creates the plants and then he puts seeds in the plants and they're going to create other plants. He creates the animals, increase, multiply. Point and process. Supernatural and natural. I've noticed that when I, I have had encounters with Jesus that have radically changed my life. Radically. At this altar, I've had moments with God I will never forget. In prayer, walking on campus, hearing the voice of God. I was praying this week at small group and God spoke a word to me. It was right what someone needed to hear. That was God. And yet I walk with God every day doing the little practices that open up the, the windows of heaven so that I might know him better. Point and process. 
Did you know when you get radically saved by the gospel, Jesus saved you? That your eyes were opened not because you're a good person, because God is good? It's a miracle to be born again. And yet, we work out our salvation in process every day. We see this in creation. There is supernatural and there is natural. And one does not eclipse the other. They walk together in a dance. We also see that God has made us in his image. Empowered beings. If you'll notice and you read through the, the creation narrative, God stops naming things on day three. Y'all know that, right? He's naming this is day, this is night, this is this, this is, and it's day three, he stops. Why does he stop? Because he's going to create man and woman in his image, and he's going to give them power to create. God is making room for us. God is great and not so insecure that he needs to do everything. He is love, and he's calling others into his love. He is holding himself back so that you can walk into your purpose and your destiny. We see this here, that God creates male and female. That one gender could not encompass all that God wanted to reveal about who he was. That male and female created in the image of God, display aspects of who God is that we wouldn't see otherwise. That's, a rad that's radical. It's radical. And yet it's right here, and God is showing differences. All of creation is differences, day and night. Fish, birds, mammals. Sun, moon, stars. Man, woman. And he's speaking into them differences. Do you see that? That gender isn't just a social construct, that we're just equal and completely the same. No, God defined us as different, male and female. Now, does culture express those roles in different ways? Absolutely. There's diversity there. But let's not misunderstand who we are by his creation. We encounter God in the face of a stranger. That, I believe, is the Hebrew Bible's single greatest, most counterintuitive contribution to ethics. Jonathan Sachs, the dignity of diversity, that each one of us bears the image of God. That's why injustice, that's why slavery has been such a scourge on this nation's history, because it, it gives us a picture of all that the Bible does not. Every person born in the image of God with dignity, Echoing who God is. This phrase, the image of God, was actually used only for, it was reserved, it was a holy saying only for royalty. The, the king of Egypt was the image of God, the Pharaoh. And yet, God in his creation is saying, you, the lowly of the low, the, the highest of the heights and the lowly, all bear the image of God. You bear his image. Thirdly, we see here, in studying the setting of creation, that God made us with creaturely limitations. Let, let me help you this morning. You are not God. You're not God. 
You're not God. He's created you to sleep. Did you know that? You have to. There's all this science. You know what it says? You're supposed to sleep. Eight, like eight hours a day. Now, there, there's some nuances there. But as a general rule, you're supposed to sleep. And if you don't, it's going to have wide-ranging ramifications. Did you know that was written in creation? Part of our problem is we, we don't want to be limited. We want to do everything all the time. But when we embrace that I am not everything, I can't be everything. That's what's written in creation. God is everything. I'm just a part of his creation. He defines time, light and dark, morning and evening. We can try to deny the laws of nature only to realize that they still exist. And it's in this limitation that we see the goodness of God and we flourish in our humanity. Our limitation doesn't make us less than, it makes us beautiful. I'm not a mammal, I'm not a bird, I'm not a fish. I'm a man created in the image of God. And I'm embracing that. Pulls out the beauty. If you walk on a baseball field or a sports field and you begin to define people, you're a catcher, you're a pitcher, that is by definition limiting who they can be. The catcher cannot run out in the outfield. Did y'all know that? During the game, the catcher has to be back where he is. And when he embraces his role, he flourishes. Does that make sense? So definition and identity don't limit us. They actually allow us to grow roots and flourish. We can rage against our limitations. And we may experience breakthroughs in certain areas. And I hope we do. But eventually, we realize that I can't be all things to all people at all times, everywhere, all at once. Because I'm not God. And some of our issues in understanding our world is that we're trying to be. Number three, and finally, the Sabbath of creation. The climax of God's creative order is humanity, which is awesome. But the climax of the narrative is actually not man. It's Sabbath. If you read the narrative and all the, the literary scholars will look at it and say, man, the, 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 the ultimate to this narrative is Sabbath. There are seven days of creation. Seven announcements that creation is good. There are seven Hebrew words in the first line of the Bible. There are two times seven Hebrew words, words in the second verse of the Bible. The verses of the seventh day are three lines of seven Hebrew words. It's all culminating into day seven. This Sabbath rest, this place where God and humanity in the, the temple of his creation exist for his glory. And notice, 
in this passage, there is no evening and morning the seventh day. It doesn't end. God's design is that God with you in creation, taking the resources that he's put here with your creativity and your stewardship, create things in his glory for his glory with God for all of eternity. That's the vision. There is no evening and morning on the Sabbath. There is a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Yes, it's pointing to Jesus, but Jesus had to come because of our sin. And Jesus unites us with God so that we can be with him forever, which was the ultimate intent to begin with. Do we understand this? That Christ comes as the hero of the story, but the story has a setting, a creation context that you were created for God, to walk with God, to know God, to be with God, to work alongside of God, to procreate in the creation that God made with God, for God, for all of eternity. That's what you were designed for. Yeah, there's, there's sin. We're going to talk about that. Yeah, there's the fall. Sure. It's changed the game. But we must understand what happened from the beginning so that when we understand the fall and we see the redemption of what Christ has done, we can walk out what Christ has done in us for all of eternity, death not being the end, but only a step into the greater story. God designed us, male and female, in intimate relationship with God, living in creation, in peace with God, in collaboration with creation, ruling and reigning the earth, and enjoying it forever. That was the design. You and I, with God, Working, creating, creating music, creating architecture, creating culture, creating language, creating with God, the God of creation in the image of God forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your beautiful creation. Thank you, Lord, that you created us in the image of God. That you designed us for relationship and for worship. Father, I pray that you would, as Paul prayed, and as we prayed at the beginning, would open our eyes so that we might see you and know you, that we might know your love. That we are not an accident. Lord, I just pray right now by the Spirit of God that you would minister to every heart in this room and every heart watching online that they are not an accident, that they are not uh, here by chance, but they have been created by God for God for all of eternity. That they have purpose and dignity. Lord, that they might know you, the great God who loves them, and has created them for himself. Father, I ask this morning that you would help us see ourselves not as accidents, Lord, but, and not just as created, but as vice regents, as men and women for the glory of God to rule and reign, God, 
that we're not just to exist. We're not just to get by, to be entertained, but we're to join you in ruling and reigning, God. I pray that you would awaken the Imago Dei in us. Father, I thank you this morning that everything that sin did in us that you undid by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you are undoing even to this day as heaven invades earth in our hearts and our lives to realign us back to your ultimate intention for us. I pray, Lord, that you would give dignity to our work, to the small things that we do every day as your representatives in the earth. I pray that you would be a part of that, Father, that we would see all of creation as your temple, all of creation as displays of your glory, that we might be a part of it, Father. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Why don't we stand to our feet as we close this morning? Thank you for being with us. Hope that encouraged you, that Jesus has made you for his glory and for himself. We're going to be here next week to continue our series. If you're here for our Preparing for Victory class, we're going to meet immediately following uh, the service with lunch and child care provided in probably about 10 to 15 minutes after we can kind of fellowship. So let's take advantage of this moment. If you need prayer in here this morning, we're going to fill the altars up here with, with people to pray for you, help stand with you if you need a miracle or you need someone to stand with you. Amen. Finally, as you leave, there should be some cards available that are like invites to invite uh, people to Easter service on April 9th, I guess it is. So it's not too long away. If you want to grab a couple of those, invite your neighbors, friends, coworkers. We'd love to have them here on Easter Sunday. You guys have an amazing day. We'll see you next week.